Great to see all of you back on this Saturday evening. Appreciate you being with us and hanging with us through this week. We've had a good time. Appreciate the elders here at this place for the invitation to come and to be able to spend this time with you this week as well. Um, if you've been here throughout this week, you know that last night I started a three-part series on Elisha. And that being said, I've entitled it Blind to the Blaze. And I'm going to do a little bit of a review for those that were not able to be here yesterday and, uh, and then kind of catch you up to where we're at, 2 Kings chapter 2 today. If you're visiting with us, you're from the community, we especially welcome you. want to welcome you back anytime you have an opportunity. I know the congregation here with open arms would love to have you come and to be a part every time the doors open here and, and be a part of the ministry effort that's put forth in this place. There are some that are here from neighboring congregations, and we appreciate your love and concern for the gospel and wherever it's preached and your support of sister congregations in the area. It's just fantastic to, to see all of you again as well, and, and what a privilege it's been for Lisa and I to be here this week. We thoroughly have enjoyed ourselves. Let's get into the material this evening. We've got a lot of ground to cover tonight, um, but we basically started last night uh, in looking at the life of Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19. And just to open up, verse number 16, Jehu the son of Nimshah, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou uh, anoint to be prophet in thy room. Uh, this Elisha was called to be a prophet. Now, to put you in the context of the story, there's Elisha and there's Elijah in the Bible, and they both happened about the same time in history. Elijah, and, and we picked up the story last night, he was in a cave in 1 Kings chapter 19, and he's, woe is me, I'm, all, I'm the only one faithful to you, God. There's nobody else that's willing to serve you but me. Take my life from me because, you know, it's worth, it ought to be over by now because, I, you know, I'm the only one that's doing anything for you. And God says, there are 7,000 faithful men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. They need a prophet. You need to go be a prophet. And I want you to anoint Elisha to be a prophet as well. So ultimately, he did that. He went out there and he found Elisha. First Kings chapter 19, verse number 19. He was plowing a field with 12 yoke of oxen. He's a farmer. He's out just plowing a field. He didn't come from prophet roots. He wasn't some son of a prophet or anything along those lines. He's just plowing a field. He's doing what it is that probably most people would have been doing in those days. And then I want you to notice that he was called to follow Elijah. He was called to minister to him. And he ran after Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse number 20. And he had a, he had a job to do and it was to minister to him, to help. To Elijah was his mentor as a prophet, to learn how to be a prophet of God, etc. But he wasn't just called to follow him, he's called to be a committed follower. And in fact, we see his level of commitment because before he went and ran after Elijah and he said, before I go with you, I want to go talk to my folks. And tell him bye. And when he did, he boiled the oxen, took the instruments of the oxen, destroyed them. And, and he was committed. He was not going back to farming. He had already farmed. He's through farming. He's committed to be a prophet. When he answered the call to be a prophet, he had no intention of turning back. And then we talked about 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse number 8 and how Elijah told him on several occasions. He said, you stay here at Bethel and I'm, I'm going to take care of some profiting duties in Bethel, and he said, I'm not leaving your side. And he said, well, I'm going to go on up here to Jericho. And, and he said, you stay here, and I'll, I'll go up here to Jericho. You stay here. And he said, I'm not leaving your side. And you remember how Elijah smote the waters, and they parted, and kind of one of those Moses moments, and he walked across on dry ground. And, 
And after that, he looked at Elisha. He said, what would you like that I do to you? And he said, do you remember that part in the waters thing? He said, I'd like two of those. I'd like the, I'd like the ability to part waters. I'd like a double portion of thy spirit upon me. And he said, let me tell you, if you're here and you're present and you see me when I'm taken up from thee, he said, you'll get a double portion of that spirit. And you remember how Elijah was then taken up in a whirlwind into heaven? He was there present. The mantle fell to him. And we pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 2 for our message tonight. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse number 12. When Elisha saw it, he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes, and he rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell down from him and went back and stood by the bank of the river Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, or, uh, or smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. Now I want you to just picture the grief that Elisha has. Elisha is, he's in mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. He's in sackcloth and ashes. His clothes are rent in twain. That's a, a passage you see quite often in the Old Testament that says he's in grief. He is saddened. His mentor has died. The guy that taught him how to be a prophet, the guy that taught him to be committed and present and, and faithful to him, he's gone. And he stands there at the bank of the River Jordan in tears, essentially, in grief, upset over the fact that his mentor's gone. What did he do? Well, let me tell you what he did. He rose to the calling and he continued to be a prophet for the children of God. He didn't give up, he didn't stop. He didn't say, Oh, well, this isn't fun anymore. I'm going back to the house. Well, he didn't pull a John Mark and say, well, we're just, you know, I I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm going back to mama. He didn't do that. He went and continued the work that needed to be done. As you continue on with the story of Elisha, there's the story of the woman with the empty vessels that never went dry. The Shunammite woman, the Shunammite woman that wanted to have a child and couldn't have a child. Elisha came to her and said, you're going to bear a child. Kind of one of those Abraham type stories, Abraham and Sarah type stories. And she kind of laughed as well and said, it's, it's impossible, can't do that. He said, you're going to have a child. And she had a child. Then the child died. And then we see her not even losing faith when her own child died. And, and they said, aren't you grieving over this? He, she said, the same person that gave me a child and raised him from the dead called Elisha over there. He laid on top of him five times, the Bible said. He rose up, rose from the dead. You may remember the story of deadly pottage. The 20 loaves of barley, then corn for 100 men, kind of one of those stories that Jesus fed, you know, 5,000 with two fishes and some loaves. You remember in 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman, how Naaman had leprosy. He's an honorable man, a great man, but he had leprosy. He had, a, had, a, had an incurable disease. And he had a handmaid that said, there's a prophet of God, Elisha. He's in this country. He's in this land. You need to go see him. And he went to go see him. And he, he came up to Elisha's house. And he's expecting some great miracle. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him and said, go dip in the river Jordan seven times. And thy flesh shall come again to thee like the flesh of a little child. And he was mad. The Bible says he turned away and went, went away in his rage. He was upset over the fact that the prophet of God told him to go dip in the river Jordan. And he began to rationalize it himself. And he said, Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He said, Behold, surely I thought he would come and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Call upon the name of the Lord his God and recover the leper. He was upset. I want you to notice he walked away with his leprosy. 
He had a handmaiden that came to him, though, and said, If he'd have bid thee to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather when he said, Go dip the river Jordan seven times. And he kind of came to himself, and sometimes we're that way. Sometimes we kind of do the foolish thing, and we do the knee-jerk reaction, and then we kind of come to ourselves and say, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to do what God's asked me to do. And he did. He went and dipped himself seven times the river Jordan. His flesh came back to him just as was promised. You may remember the story of the floating axe head, a piece of iron that didn't sink. And some of you may have seen the comedian that talks about it. Did that axe head sink? Did that axe head sink? No, it didn't sink. And a miracle of God was performed. Now I want to take you to 2 Kings chapter 6, which is where I got the title for the sermon. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse number 12 through 16. Now just to set it up a little bit, the king of Syria is troubled. And the king of Syria is saying, everywhere I go, every battle I fight, it's like Israel knows what I'm doing before I'm there. How is this possible? And he's talk, he gathers his smart guys around him and he says, what's going on with this? And I want you to pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse number 12. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. And he called his servants and said unto them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that's in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. Basically, to put that in the non-King James sort of English, he basically said, There's a guy named Elisha that's a prophet of God, and he knows what you're thinking when you go to bed at night. He knows where you're going. He knows what decision you're going to make in battle. He knows what you're thinking before you even go to sleep. He knows what you're doing. And, and the normal question for the king of Syria is, Where is this guy? Look at verse number 13. And he said, I'm pointing to that screen back there like y'all know where that's at. Look at verse number 13. Look at verse number 13. I'll, I'll work off this screen. And he said, go and spy where he is that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, but we know where he's at. He's in Dothan. Well, let's go to Dothan. Verse number 14. Therefore sent he hither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Alas, my master, how shall we do? I love that phrase. We'll talk about it here in just a second. And he answered and said, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now I want you to just get the context of what's happening. This king of Syria is troubled. He goes, somebody knows what I'm thinking. And he said, there's a prophet of God that's telling the king of Israel what you're doing. And he's warning them. He's saying, don't go over that way because the you know, king of Syria is trying to destroy you over here. So he said, well, where is this guy? He's in Dothan. Let's go to Dothan. He sends his chariots and horsemen. He surrounds the city. And, and oh, Elisha's got a servant. And the servant looks out the window. And he looks out there and he goes, we are surrounded. And he goes, alas, my master, how shall we do? I love that phrase in the old King James. Love it. Basically, he's saying, we're up a creek without a paddle. We got a problem. We're surrounded. What are we going to do? And he said, don't worry about it. Fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Don't worry about it. And of course, you know you've got to be, if you're that servant and you're looking outside, go, we're surrounded by chariots and horsemen. We're fixing to die. This is not good. Elisha, wake up and smell the coffee. And he says, don't worry about it. We got more on our team than they got on their team. I want you to notice what happened in verse number 17. Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. See, the young man didn't really see what was happening. 
Young man didn't see the spiritual thing that was taking place. Elisha was protected. He was protected by a mountain full of horses and chariots of flaming fires all the way around Elisha. There was nothing going to harm Elisha. And he says to the servant, open your eyes that you can see what's really going on here. And his eyes were open and he saw. He was able to see the spiritual warfare that was taking place. I want to walk away tonight with some lessons I think we can learn from this part of the story. Last night we talked about, I talked about three different points. I want to review those for you very quickly. That, you know, Elisha was just a farmer. He was called to be a prophet of God. And I want to tell you, God's calling you. God's called you into his kingdom. God's called you to be a father or a husband. God's called you into a lot of different walks of life. I want to tell you, you can be used of God in any background. You want to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ? You want to be a part of the congregation here at Amarillo Church of Christ? I want to tell you, it doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter where you come from, you can be a part. There's a place for you. There's work to be done. There's talents and gifts and abilities that are different. And I want to tell you, you can be used. And, and God called throughout, you remember the life of Jesus as well. He called different ones. Elisha was a farmer. Peter, a fisherman. Christ, a carpenter. Luke, a physician. Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. Paul, a persecutor. Onesimus was a slave. God used all of them for his glory. He can use you too. The second thing we looked at last night was God not only calls us, but he calls us to be committed we talked about last night being all in. And you can't be partly all in. You can't be half all in. You can't be some all in. you got to be all in or not all in. And God's called you to be all in. And I want to tell you today that God's asking you to be all in. You've made a dedicated commitment to Christ. You've made a dedicated commitment that I want to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That commitment needs to be an all in commitment. I'm here. When everybody else walks away, when tough times come, when good times are here, it doesn't matter regardless what the situation is. I'm here. I'm committed. I'm all in. We're going to walk through the bad times. We'll walk through them together. That's all in. And husbands, you need to have an all-in commitment when you made a vow to your wife. There's going to be some days that's not as good as other days. There's going to be some days that are hard times or difficult times. But we're not in here for the good times just. We're in here for good and bad. And we're going to be here sickness and in health and richer and poor. And you got the idea. It's all in. How many of us have made that kind of an all-in commitment? How many of you made that kind of all-in commitment to your church, to God? A lot of us are going, well, I'm not going to go there anymore because I'm looking for something that will work for me. Or I'm not going there anymore because I, the air conditioner was a degree off. Or I'm not going there anymore because padding wasn't as comfortable as I would have liked for it to be in. Or, or whatever the situation is, that's not all in. That's me, me, me is what that is. And what we need is an all-in commitment to do the ministry of the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 12, we talked about last night. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for the account of me faithful putting me into the ministry. Are you counted faithful in the ministry of Christ? I hope that you are. We talked about the fact that not only God calls you and God calls you to be committed, but God also calls you to be present. We talked about how Elisha was told that if you'll be here when I'm taken from you, you'll get a double portion of that spirit. God calls us to be present. And Elisha said, I'm not leaving you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here by your side. And I want to tell you, we talked about last night, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 17, love the brotherhood. You know, we wouldn't have to worry about church attendance if people loved the brotherhood. People loved their brethren. We wouldn't worry about finances in the church if people loved the brotherhood, loved their brethren, and cared about the church, and cared about the ministry church. We wouldn't be concerned about those things. Because we'd have that all-in commitment. We love it. We're going to be present. We're going to be accounted for. We're going to be a part. We're going to be in. We're going to be involved. Now I want you to walk away with some lessons from tonight's sermon. 
You know, Elisha was going through a bad time. His mentor died. He could have given up, but he didn't lose faith during bad times. I want to tell you a little bit of a story, a couple of stories, I guess. You know, sometimes in life we get to thinking that life is, doesn't have any hard times or shouldn't have any hard times or difficult times. I want to tell you, there's a couple of people that I think about every day. There's not a day goes by I don't think about them. One of those was a little lady that stands about this tall. And it's my grandmother. She died, she was 84 years old. She lost her husband when she was in her 40s. She was about 45 when her husband died of heart issues, my grandfather. My dad was seven years old when his dad died. He basically grew up without a dad in his house. He had an older brother that was 15 at the time, that kind of thing. My grandmother never remarried. When she died, you could probably count the dollars in her bank account because I'm going to guess she probably had $4,000 or less in a bank account. No house, no car. She's 84 years old. Lived with kids, you know, that kind of thing. Very simple woman. She ironed clothes to put food on her family's table. I can't tell you the amount of influence that woman had on my life or has on my life today. There's not a day goes by I don't think about her. When she took her last breath, I was sitting at her bedside. She was a powerful woman in Christ. She lived her life dedicated to the cause of Christ. Not a day goes by I don't think about her. It's another couple of individuals I don't go through a day without thinking about. One of those is Sam Potter. Some of you know Sam. Sam died in 1996. Sam and Donna were very involved in Lisa's and sorry. Dear Lisa's in my early days in preaching. Sam one night had a heart attack and died. Been preaching a meeting, baptized a guy that evening. Came home in the middle of the night, got up not feeling well, and died in his kitchen floor, just like that in his 40s. I was asked to help sing at the funeral. I was present at the funeral. I didn't sing much. I cried. But I can't tell you the influence that that guy had in my life. I'll tell you another one fairly recently, and that's Justin Springer. Justin and I were very close friends. Justin was the kind of guy I could tell you, but... I didn't even know Justin when Justin was a teenager. But I remember a time when Karen came up to me at a brotherhood meeting and said, I've met this guy and he wants to be a preacher. I didn't know who he was. Met him, was introduced to him. He moved down to our part of the country in the late 80s and he and I developed a real friendship. The kind of friendship that you just don't have every day. The kind of friendship that goes to Nigeria together and sleeps on a stinky piece of foam in the middle of a hut at Obudu. Craig remembers he was in the room with a hundred thousand eyes looking at you from little African children through the thatched hut that we were staying in on the floor. Swatting mosquitoes, stinking, hadn't had a bath in a week, hadn't eaten in a week. It's the kind of guy that we did a lot of church work together in the Gulf Coast area. 
Some of you knew Justin. But Justin called one night and he said, I've got pancreatic cancer. You've got to be kidding. Christmas night. They basically told him, I'm giving you the short version, it may not feel like it to you, but they basically told him, you've got six months to live with no treatment, 12 months with treatment. He took treatment, he lasted nine months and died essentially nine months later. I saw a guy that walked through the valley of the shadow of death. I saw a guy that knew he was going to die and did it with great class, great faith, amazing poise. I just want to tell you a story. He got near the end of his life and got a call on Wednesday. Larry Fambro called me. Larry Fambro had taken him to the doctor and he had been taking treatments for a long time and Larry called and he said, it's bad news. The doctor has said his bilirubin count is up. I'm always worried about talking about this kind of stuff because there's a nurse in the crowd probably that says, oh, you're a little off on something. I apologize. If, but as I understood it, his bilirubin count was up and the understanding was that he was at about 12,000 and if you get to 20,000, you lose consciousness. This is like on a Wednesday. I get a phone call. I go see him, you know, on Thursday or whatever. He's at 14,000. On Friday, he's at, at uh, 16,000. At Saturday, he's at 18,000. At Sunday, you know, there comes a time you know it's D-Day. I'm a little off on the numbers because Tuesday was D-Day. Tuesday was the day he was going to hit 20,000. And I went and saw him Sunday night. And there was a lot of other families surrounding him and that kind of thing. Monday, he went home from the hospital, essentially to die. I didn't go over there Monday because I thought the family probably needed some time, that kind of thing. And Lisa and I just kind of kept our distance. Justin was very gracious. Karen was very gracious. You know, you are family. Come, come. But we just didn't want to be in the middle. We felt like Nathan and Jacob and Karen needed time. But Tuesday morning, I went over to his house. And that was the day he was supposed to hit 20,000. And I went over there that morning. I got there about 9 o'clock in the morning. He's sitting in a chair. And I said, Brother Springer, how are you? He said, I'm fine. Brother Fleming knew who I was. Got up, went over to his bed, said very little else, laid down as far as my knowledge of being there and being present. He never got back up again. He lost consciousness that day. It took him another week or so to die. And there was some period of time in there that's just very tough for families to go through I want to tell you there's not a day goes by I don't think about a guy that walks into death with that kind of class and poise he knew exactly what was going to happen and he knew when it was going to happen it was happening on Tuesday and he walked into it and he knew what he was walking into as much as one can know on this side of the veil of death I want to tell you a 30 year relationship with Justin and I've never seen such poise in such class. Not a day-to-day -day goes by that I don't think about it. Our work in our part of the country, the Gulf Coast area where I live, has changed since his passing. It's different than it was. And I will tell you for a period of time, Lisa had to kind of kick me in the rear to get me up out of the, the doldrums. Because it's really easy to kind of go, this just isn't fun anymore.
Justin's gone. Kick yourself in the rear and kind of get back to work kind of thing. What do you do during the tough times? Maybe your story is different, but everybody in this room has a story. Maybe you've lost a baby or a spouse. Maybe you had a stillborn child. Miscarriage. Maybe you lost your parents, your friends, whatever the story. What do you do? Maybe you've gone through other tragedy like divorce, etc. Things that are traumatic and difficult to go through. What do you do during difficult times? What do you do when times are tough? I can tell you, you rent your clothes in pieces and you sit in sackcloth and ashes and you're in mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. But I tell you, what we need to do is take a lesson from Elisha and go back to work. I'm not saying grief isn't important. Grief's an important thing to go through. But I'm saying at some point in time, you've got to get back up and you've got to keep walking. And I want to encourage you tonight, if you're in the midst of trouble or tribulation or difficulty, that you keep one foot in front of another and you keep walking and you don't give up. And no matter what's in front of you, you keep hustling and you keep doing it. Sometimes it's not even fun to do, but you keep doing it because it's the right thing to do. Because it's the good thing to do. Keep walking. Don't give up. Do the work you've been called to do. That's what Elisha did. He was in grief over losing his mentor, but he didn't stop. He took the mantle and he struck the waters and they parted through and he went back to work to be a prophet for the children of God. And we've got to have a mission in front of us that's far more important than seeing trouble and difficulty in our life. Too often we get sidetracked by all this difficulty. Sometimes we even get caught up in the me, me, me because of the difficulty. What I'm telling you is keep the vision in front of you. Keep the mission in front of you and don't, don't get sidetracked. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, I just want you to notice this verbiage. He says, we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your tribulations. He didn't say, I'm glad for your patience and faith, but I'm glad you were patient and faithful in your persecutions, in your difficulties. I want to tell you that's the tough time to be faithful. That's the tough times. That's the hard times to keep walking. But brothers and sisters, three times a week we get together to practice for just such times. That's what we're doing. You know, at times I'm even amazed how we get so caught up in all the stuff because it's not like it surprises any of us. Ecclesiastes 7 says that it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting because that's the end of all men and the living will lay it to his heart. Everybody's going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. There's going to be a day some of you will make the trip to Houston to walk by the casket because Ty's gone. All of us know that. We practice for it three times a week. And then trouble comes or difficulty comes and we throw our arms up and go, this just isn't fun anymore. As though we were guaranteed it to be fun every day. And we weren't. I know there's some people in your life that have meant a lot to you. And what I'm saying is take the lessons, take the good things from them. Don't let the memories die, but keep walking. Keep pushing. Keep one foot in front of another and don't give up. It's very easy when people go through tragedy and things like that, divorce, things like that. It's easy to throw your hands up and give up and quit. Don't do it. Keep walking. Mark chapter 6 and verse number 11. Jesus gave 
some instruction to his disciples and said, when you go preach the gospel, somebody doesn't listen to you, somebody doesn't hear you, shake off the dust from your feet for a testimony against them and keep working. It's real easy for us to get down, isn't it, when we see obstacles in front of us, when we see things that's not going our way. But I want to tell you, don't give up. Just knock the dust off your feet and keep walking. I want to encourage you too to walk by faith, not by sight. And I think we see that in the story of Elisha as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 7 says, We walk by faith, not by sight. Most of us, though, spend time walking by sight, don't we? We're like the servant guy that's looking out the window going, Elisha, we're surrounded. And what did Elisha say? Fear not. We've got a lot more on our team than they've got. Well, the young servant couldn't see everybody on his team. That didn't make any sense to him. You know why? Because he wasn't walking by faith. He's walking by what he could see. He's walking by what he could see, and what he could see was uh, we're surrounded. And what I think we need to be encouraged to do is learn to walk by faith. That we train ourselves three times a week to understand how to spiritually discern things. How to look for something through the eye of faith. We need to learn to look beyond the problem and see God's answer to the problem. When we go through difficult times, trouble times, maybe it's sickness, disease, divorce, death, all those things, whatever it is, that we look beyond the problem and we see God's answer to the problem and we start answering the way God asks us to answer and look at it the way God looks at us to look at it. And then do not fear. That's what Elisha told the young man. Don't fear. You know what fear does? Fear will... Do strange things to you. Proverbs 28 verse number 1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. You know, when you're afraid, you start seeing stuff. They're after me. There's somebody that thinks that, you know, we start getting paranoid. Don't fear. Fear paralyzes you. Sometimes when you're afraid, you just, you don't know which way to move. Can't tell you the times that people have gone through tragedy or whatever and literally they're just frozen. They're going, I don't know what decision to make. I don't know which way to turn. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. And I want to tell you how to do it. It's the same way you've been practicing to do it. You walk by faith, not by sight. You make decisions because you're walking by the instruments, not by what you're seeing. What we see is obstacles. What we see are obstacles. Let me do that with correct English. What we see are the obstacles in front of us. But what I want you to learn to see is through an eye of faith. Hebrews 13, verse number 6. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I shall not fear. I will not fear what men shall do unto me. When God is on your side, you don't have to fear. You can walk through it. Psalm 3, and verse number 6. I'll not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves Against me round about, David said. I don't care if there's an army of 10,000 people around me. If I've got God on my side, I'm not going to fear about it. That's not the way we act, though, as humans, is it? What we do when we're humans is we see the obstacles. We see the problems. And we don't look beyond the problem and see God's answer to the problems. We need to learn to spiritually discern. Elisha said, open his eyes that he can see what's going on here. And his eyes opened and he saw... A mountain full of chariots and flaming horsemen around Elisha. He saw spiritually what was going on. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 14 says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Because they are, and I want you to notice this phrase, spiritually discerned. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors today, 
If you're not walking with an eye of faith, if you're not walking by faith, if you're not walking with faith in front of you and God's instruments in front of you, God's plan in front of you, you're not walking that way, you're looking at the obstacles is what you're doing. And there are some things you cannot understand unless you look at it through the eye of faith, unless you spiritually discern it. Let me give you one. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. You cannot understand that verse unless you spiritually discern it. Unless you understand that through the eye of faith. Because we don't look at that in the flesh and say, yes, happy are those that die in God. We don't do that. We understand that through the eye of faith. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. And we can look at a lot of other passages. Unless you learn to spiritually discern. My brothers, sisters, I want to tell you where it's spiritual warfare. We war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, powers of darkness, etc. There is a spiritual warfare that is happening that sometimes some people cannot see. And I want you to be attuned to the fact that you're looking at a spiritual warfare. I want to tell you we win in the end. God's people win in the end. But we got to walk by faith. Don't let the obstacles get in the way. Our family's just recently been through a tragedy and you guys know that. Or at least most of you know that. My sister-in-law was tragically killed in a car wreck about a month ago. She's my age. And she wasn't just a sister-in-law. She was a lady, a young lady I'd known since the fifth grade. She came out of California and went to church with us. She was part of our youth group when we were growing up. Killed like that. Still had four children at home. The youngest one's four years old. The police officer came to me at the accident scene. I came up on the accident scene right after it happened before the police were there and the ambulances were there and all that. And I saw my sister-in-law. I saw her kids. There were seven people in that vehicle and six of them walked away. Unless we want to consider the woman that was expecting a baby and add one to that. They walked away from that accident with cuts and bruises and glass and that kind of stuff. Kathy was killed. police officer at the end of the night I stood there till well after dark it happened about six o'clock in the evening and it was probably close to 11 I'm at the scene by myself essentially I'm waiting to try to get purses out of a vehicle and that kind of thing to try to help some of the people that had gone to the hospital and the officer came up to me and he said your brother he's different and I said well I didn't know there was a book written on how you're supposed to act when your wife is killed in a car accident. Leland had come to the scene and trying to take care of kids and that kind of thing. And he said, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, he's different. And I said, well, once again, you know, he had kids that were hurt and taken to the hospital. I don't know how you're supposed to act. I honestly don't. He said, I've done a ton of these. He said, people totally lose control. I mean, they're just totally overwhelmed with grief, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not trying to brag on Leland. I'm just saying he is different. Let me tell you why he's a Christian. We handle things different. We do things different. We walk through things. That doesn't mean we're not sad or grieved. But we walk through it because we've been practicing it three times a week, hadn't we? He is different because he's a Christian. And you can walk through things different when you're looking at it through spiritual discernment. When you see that as Kathy's beginning or transition into a new life rather than from the flesh, the obstacle, it changes the perspective. It helps us walk through. 
And it is true. Just like Elisha told the servant, there's more on our side than on theirs. We're in spiritual warfare. We've got more on our side than they've got in theirs. Romans 8 verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? I want to tell you, if God's on your side, the rest of it will work out. It may be painful and hard at times. I'm not saying the road's easy. I'm not saying that there's flowers strewn by the wayside all the time with no, with no temptation or difficulty. I'm just saying it's doable. God's with us. And if God's with us, who can be against us? And I want to tell you no one because we win in the end. Romans 8 and verse number 37 says, We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I've never seen a guy like Justin walk through a door as classy as I saw him walk through that door. He knew who he believed in. And he was persuaded that he was able to keep that which he had committed to him against that day. And he walked through it. You got that kind of faith? Or do you have that kind of faith that rends the clothes and says, I give up, I quit. Going back to the house, going to mama. I want to encourage you today. Walk out of these doors today with the kind of faith with the kind of possibility that God gives you strength to walk through whatever's in front of you. Whatever that may be. And I can promise you life will play out. And I don't know the future. I don't know the future. I've held meetings at times when people didn't make it home from the services because they had a car wreck on the way home. I don't know the future. I know who holds my hand. And I know who guides us and walks with us and helps us through those difficult times. You have an opportunity tonight. We're going to sing an invitation song that says, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bist to me come, I come. And I want to tell you tonight, you have an opportunity to come to God. You can be different. You don't have to be the woe is me and I give up and life is overwhelming me and taking me by storm. You can, tonight, take on the mantle of Christianity and begin to look at things through an eye of faith and spiritually discern things that are happening and recognize there's spiritual warfare that's happening and you're on the winning side of that team and there's more people on your team than what's on the other side. And I, you can make that decision tonight to come to Christ. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? you have that kind of faith? you want to repent of your sins, change your life and come to Him? You want to confess his name before men? You want to be buried with him in baptism? To rise and walk in newness of life? You can take on a mantle of a team of people far more on your team than the enemy's got. You're no longer serving Satan any longer. You're no, no longer serving the devil any longer. You're serving Christ. Tonight may be your night to make that decision. You can get caught up in the obstacles around you. You can wonder why you constantly are losing the battles. Or you can take on tonight and open your eyes. Have your eyes open to spiritually discern. And say, I need God on my side. He'll walk me through. You may come tonight with all kinds of backgrounds. I don't know what the background would be. Maybe all kinds of sin. I want to tell you where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. 
just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to the icon. You have an opportunity, an opportunity tonight. Don't let it pass to come to Christ. And you'll be a different person. Won't you come while we sing the song that's been selected?